We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we begin with verse 6. Uh, we're almost done. It's a very short chapter. Uh, we'll finish it up and go right into chapter 6. Uh, what we've discussed so far in the chapter, sexual immorality defies the church, verses 1 through 13. And then I broke it down into subdivisions. The need for discipline, uh, verses 1 and 2a. Uh, B, the method of discipline, verses 2b through verse 5. And then the third is the reason for discipline, uh, verses 6 through 8. There's uh, one more, I think. I believe there's one more division uh, in this section. Uh, we'll be up on it in just a few moments. But at the moment, uh, we, we studied verse 6 last week. Your growing is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Man's got his daddy's wife, and uh, it's a blemish on the church, of course, because uh, the church uh, is acting like nothing's wrong. There's no problem. And uh, this is something that the pagans wouldn't do. It's really unbecoming, and everybody sees it in the church of Christ. So Paul, he told them he's already made a decision in the matter. What are they waiting for? So he's going through and explaining why there has to be discipline in the church. Um, when he talks about the leaven, we need to understand that uh, the leaven, the, the Israelites were supposed to get all the leaven out of their house before the Passover. Uh, the leaven uh, symbolically represented evil. And this is the difficult part because sometimes leaven symbolically or figuratively uh, represents good. So it goes both ways. It depends on the context. In Exodus, the leaven represented that which was bad. You've got to get it out of your house. You can have nothing to do with leaven. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. It was a very, very big deal. Why? Because Paul the Apostle, 1,500 years later, was going to use this very matter in order to teach a lesson to Christians. Everything was for us. Even this, the Passover. It had nothing to do with us, but figuratively it had everything to do with us because there were going to be lessons we would learn from those lessons. And therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. The church uh, looked uh, like it had a big zit on its face, if you will. That's what I was thinking of when I drew this thing. Uh, it's like having a giant zit on your face, and it, you know, it looks bad, and you're very self-conscious about it. The problem was the church had this giant zit on their face, but they weren't self-conscious about it. They just didn't care. They didn't see a problem. What Paul's telling them to do is you got to purge out the old leaven. That would be the zit. you got to get it out of there. And if you do, uh, you'd be a new lump, since now you are truly unleavened. You got sin out of the camp. That's what it was all about, uh, getting sin out of the church. Uh, the principles uh, employed 
back then are true today. Nothing's changed. It's just not uh, paid as much attention to as it was back then. Today, it's, it's a whole different matter. Uh, back then, the elders had a great deal of respect. People respected their authority. That's not the case today. Uh, and there's reasons why it's not the case. A lot of times, elders aren't qualified to be elders, and people know it. They have no respect for them. What do you expect? If they're not qualified, how do you put your trust in such people? It's something you just can't do. Uh, it, it's, it's just wrong according to your very nature. Um, and so, therefore, a lot of people disregard the eldership. A lot of people disregard it because they don't like authority. They don't like anybody to be, I'm equal to you in the church. What well, gives you the right to lord it over me, some will say. Uh, it's a different generation that we live in, very different. In the United States, uh, we're free people, and we run it up the flagpole every chance we get, the fact that we're free. We owe no one nothing, bada, 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 bada. We're great, we're this, we're everything. And even though we don't want that to be a part of our fabric, we've been taught this from the day we were born till now. And unfortunately, a lot of people can't turn it loose. They, they honestly believe this verbiage, and uh, they live accordingly. The church uh, of the 21st century, in my estimation, is very, very different than the church of the first century. Uh, there are isolated cases, of course, where churches seem to have stepped out of time, and uh, those who uh, are members of the church are truly devoted to what they profess. Uh, they believe it, and to the best of their ability, they try to live it. There are those isolated cases, but as far as uh, the majority goes, I don't know that it looks so good to heaven. Uh, but it's something that we have to keep in mind. It doesn't matter what all the other churches do. What matters is what we do here. That's our primary concern. We can be everything we're supposed to be, but you can't just go by what other people do. You've got to follow what the Lord has said. And, of course, that's what we try to do in a Bible class. Purge out the old leaven. The sin has to go that you'll be an unleavened congregation. Uh, and that way God can bless you. He can't bless you if you're not unleavened. But he can uh, if you are. <clears throat> Paul continues, for indeed Christ, he's our Passover. Just like the Israelites had a Passover in the wilderness. Well, we do too. Christ is our Passover. Uh, just as the angel passed over Israel and spared those whose houses had the blood on it. Even so, Christ passes over us and spares those who have the blood on them, blood which we acquired when we were immersed in water as penitent believers. We contacted the blood that was shed on the cross, and now we wear that blood, and the Lord identifies us by means of it. So the lesson, and always keep this in mind when you're thinking about Old Testament references and studying the Old Testament, that the things that happened a long time ago, many of them were for us. That we could see we could see something done, like unleavened bread, for example. 
we can see something that was done literally and then when we're trying to understand they figuratively we can make sense of it what our writers are talking about it's all for clarification for our education therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with a leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth uh, being the best we can be in Christ and that's the best you can hope for is the best you can be uh, perfection it's not going to happen and everybody has to be realistic about that it's just not going to happen it's not going to happen to me it's not going to happen to you or anybody else uh, the church is going to uh, vary from a novice to, uh, to the elderly. Uh, people are going to be different. And people are going to have different ideas. People are going to, to not understand some things that maybe uh, the seasoned persons do. Uh, all these things have to be taken into consideration. You're not talking about the perfect congregation. Don't think that. Uh, there's always going to be imperfections. But there's a very big difference between a presumptuous sin and normal people. A presumptuous sin, the man that had his father's wife. That was presumptuous. He flaunted it right in front of God and everybody else. You can't let that stand. It's got to go. And the same is true today. It's got to go. And sometimes uh, the elders uh, have to make that happen. Uh, we have in the past, and we'll continue to do so in the future. As far as we know, you only know what people tell you. I wrote to you in my epistle. That's a previous letter that Paul wrote. Uh, was it the real 1st Corinthians? I don't know. It may have been the real 3rd Corinthians for all I know. I don't know how many letters Paul wrote before he wrote this letter. The one you and I are studying. But we know there was at least one that he wrote before they, uh, he wrote this particular letter that we're looking at now. I wrote to you in my previous epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Keep company, uh, those words mean to mix it up with. Don't mix it up with sexually immoral people. The sexually immoral uh, are fornicators, okay? Uh, we talked about this the other day. It's the umbrella that covers all uh, sexual sins. Uh, so it just covers everything. This word does. Uh, don't keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. I didn't mean with covetous or extortioners or idolaters. If, if that were the case, you'd have to go out of the world because that's what the world is made up of. You can't stay away from all that stuff. That's, you're going to run into it every time you turn around. Those are the people you try to convert. Those are the people you try to lead to Christ. When I told you not to keep company with sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about those who are not Christians. 
God will judge them. But now I have written to you not to keep company with a brother, anyone who is a Christian, who is sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, a valor, a drunkard, or an extortioner. Uh, such things uh, are not permissible. No, not even to eat with such a person. That's a, that's a phrase right there that's been discussed, considered uh, from every angle. And uh, I don't know that there's really a consensus of it. What is he talking about? Is he talking about the Lord's Supper? Perhaps. Is he talking about an average meal? Perhaps. But what do you do in a situation like that? If this person that you're keeping company with that is a fornicator, for example, what do you do if that person is your son or your daughter? Does that mean you don't let him come over for Sunday dinner anymore? I don't know, to be honest with you. Uh, I've given it a lot of thought through the years. And I don't know. Would the Lord tell us not to keep company with our own children, given these circumstances? Uh, perhaps he would. Perhaps he would. And if so, that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, it would be very hard to do. Well, there's two ways to look at that. If you converse with them, they might take that as approval on your part. The, the logic that's used by a lot of folks is that by not sitting down and eating a meal with them, they're getting the message loud and clear. My own mother and father won't fellowship me because uh, I'm, I'm living in sin with this woman. Uh, that would have bothered me a great deal when I was young, or even now for that matter. Uh, if my mom and daddy uh, cut me off, so to speak, because I was uh, living in an open sin that way, uh, I think that in itself would have made me change my ways. Uh, you, can, you can argue it from both ways. Uh, I've argued it from both ways. <laughs> I've argued myself from both ways. Uh, it's very difficult. To be honest with you, my honest opinion even if it's your son or daughter, you're to not have fellowship if they're a brother or sister in Christ. Now, if they're not a Christian, of course, the rules don't apply. But if I have a son or a daughter who is a Christian and they dis completely disregard Christ and live in an open sin, I think the Lord would want me to not fellowship them any longer, at least until they change their ways. I may be wrong. I don't know. 
I think that's what the Lord wants, but that's my opinion. My, just like my big nose. I got one on it. Now, next week, I may take the other position. I've done that before. <laughs> Depends on what kind of mood I'm in, I think. But uh, it's hard to accept the truth. Some truths are so hard to accept because it requires us to do outrageously demanding things. And that makes the command to us appear to be outrageous. But when I think about uh, what the people of the first three centuries lived through, what they were called upon to do so that they could be witnesses for us today, uh, I don't think it's as hard of a command as I would otherwise think. Uh, those folks, uh, they had it hard, big time hard. One of the worst situations, well, it happened to everybody just about, but I read about a woman uh, who they tied to a pole. She was naked, and they laid her baby at her feet, and they left them. And, of course, the baby cried and needed to be fed, and the mama couldn't do anything about it. And uh, they both, she hung there, and the baby laid there until both of them died. That happened frequently. It happened uh, in the uh, Colosseum when they would put uh, a 12-year-old boy up on a, uh, uh, they call them torches. Uh, they would douse them in kerosene, and uh, you would have to deny Christ, or they would light your son up. And uh, some denied Christ, and they got their kid off that pole. But there were a whole lot of them that didn't. They, uh, they let their child be burned up. I think that would be harder. Uh, the Lord requires uh, obedience and trust and trust. That's why um, I talk about the potential benefits. If we do uh, break fellowship with our child, perhaps that will cause them to uh, change their ways. It would have had a tremendous effect on me as a kid. I know it would have. It would have a tremendous effect on me today if my mom and daddy was here and I thought they were going to cut me off uh, for sinning against Christ right there. You know, that's bad enough. And then they had mom and daddy cut me off to boot. Uh, I think I would have thought long and hard about it. it I, don't, I can't think of anything that would be worth it. No woman, no booze, no dope, no nothing. Uh, I think I would have straightened up. So it depends on how you look at it. Something to, something to mull around, though. Give you some food for thought. Things you can think about. Tough stuff. But Christian living is tough stuff. It's not a breeze. That's why Jesus said, count the cost. Make sure that's what you're willing to do. Count the cost. Otherwise, you'll be trampled by the other army. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and 6, Paul taught, We command you, brethren, in the name by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly um, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Uh, you got, again, the emphasis is on every brother. It's not every person, but every brother who walks disorderly. 
one of the problems uh, that Paul was dealing with in Thessalonica was some of the Christians weren't working anymore. It's kind of like uh, a lot of people are today. After all that free money was passed out during COVID, uh, I mean, they'll get right on TV and say, I don't want to work. I want to stay home. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't? But there's a, there's a whole lot of people right now that just simply choose not to work. Uh, and Paul said, when a Christian chooses not to work, you let that little guy get real good and hungry. Don't give him anything to eat. He'll go to work once he gets hungry enough. Of course, today, because we're such a compassionate and kind people, uh, we keep people up who choose not to work. It's one thing, people that cannot work. It's a whole other thing that people that choose not to work. And uh, apparently we've decided that we're just going to feed anybody, no matter who they are. Uh, and the taxpayer can pay for it. Government dollars at work. Uh, Paul didn't want it that way, though. What have I to do with judging those who are outside? He means outside the church. Do you not judge those who are inside? Isn't that what we're supposed to do, he implies. But those who are outside the church, God, God will judge them. We have to take care of our own matters inside the church and let the Lord take care of the rest. Therefore, he said, put away from yourselves the evil person. That's the man the father was going to have to put away his son. And that's what Paul commanded them to do. And they did. And you know what happened after they did? He repented, 2 Corinthians. He repented and he straightened up. Why withdraw from every brother? Number one, little leaven's going to leaven the whole lump. If we have uh, people given to drinking or whatever openly in the church. If we have people who are living together without being married, if we have people uh, living in sin and they're openly in the church, they're openly participating in the things that go on. You got all these kids. Well, besides everything, you got God watching, you got the, the church watching, the faithful, you've got the, the neighborhood watching, but you got all these little children watching too. And these children, they grow up and they watch what's going on. They're not dumb. They're sponges. They soak up everything. They soak up every word they hear spoken. They soak up every image they see with their eyes. And they know that there's people in the church who aren't living the way the preacher talks, but they're living very differently. They're living in sin. And even so, they're just as safe. They're going to heaven, just like everybody else. Now, what's the child going to live like when they get older? It's bad enough that it happens to enough people's children. There are so many children that have been given an example of sinful living, and it's been presented to them as a very good thing a very real possibility something that even God approves of and these children grow up under such 
tutelage. And that's what they think too. Because that's what mommy and daddy said. And they become gross sinners and don't even know they did because no one ever told them along the way. I believe there's a lot of people in our country that were raised exactly that way. And they don't know right from wrong. They're not being hypocritical, they just don't know. The moral code isn't something that comes naturally to us. For a person to think when you get married and then you get divorced and you get married again, you get divorced, to them that's not a problem. It doesn't violate their conscience. They don't see anything wrong with it because that's the way they were raised. Same thing's true about homosexuality. Same thing's true about almost anything that children are exposed to. Well, the Lord doesn't want children in his church to be exposed to such things. Therefore, remove it. Get it out from in front of their face. Let them know that the Lord doesn't approve of that kind of living. Secondly, the reputation of the church is at stake. Can you imagine what people in Corinth said about the church of Christ? You, you know that one of their members down there is living with his daddy's wife? Do you know that? And he still claims to be going to heaven? They let people go to heaven that lives with their daddy's wife. Might have been his mama. Personally, I don't think so. But it could have been. For all we know, we have nothing to tell us otherwise that I'm aware of. What did the church look like to the community? Why, well, a bunch of hypocrites. You ever hear that one before? The name hypocrite being applied to us isn't always, isn't always false. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes people see hypocrisy, and that's what they label us. Therefore, remove the leaven. For the sake of the sinning brother, this was something that no one was thinking about. The man's got his daddy's wife, a sin that even a pagan wouldn't commit. Is anybody trying to restore him to the Lord? No. Well, why not? Something's wrong. If this man is lost and he's your brother in Christ, why aren't you trying at least to persuade him to live properly? Look out for his sake. He needs help. He's in He's in real serious trouble. Apparently, he thought it was okay that he needed to learn better. It revealed true Christian character that there's no place for leaven in the body of Christ. Leaven within the body of Christ is a cancer. It's a cancer. It's got to be removed or it's going to spread, one or the other. Christ doesn't want his body to be eaten up with cancer. That's why he says remove the cancer. And that's what we are required to do today. And then, of course, to glorify the Lord. The fact that the Lord comes before everyone to me. And people see that. 
and they learn something about me and something about you. That brings us into chapter 6. Uh, oh, lawsuits. This is one that's always irritating. Uh, a part, the true rank of Christians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Uh, the situation at Corinth uh, at a glance. I've forgotten this part, but uh, I guess I'll see it when you see it. Challenging words in the oh, I remember now. Challenging words in the original text has led to many controversies. There's a lot of debate uh, over this chapter, a whole lot of debate, actually. Uh, and I understand why the debate exists, but that's one of the reasons why it's so important to study the meaning of words. Uh, the Corinthians' immediate problem, everybody, I think, would agree to, saints taking saints before the courts of unbelievers. I take Rita down here to Gainesboro before a judge in Gainesboro, perhaps a jury, and I'm going to sue her for whatever, okay? This is what Paul's talking about. Saints shall judge the world and angels. Uh, us, we, are going to judge the world and angels in the great judgment. We're going to be involved in that judgment. According to the Lord Jesus, we're qualified to do that work in the day of the judgment. Why aren't the saints, therefore, judging your little matters? Here's what he means. If the church is able to judge the world and angels, then why am I taking Rita to Gainesboro before a judge or a jury when I could put, we could put the matter before you? Let you judge the matter, and your decision would stand. This is Paul's logic. You are more qualified to judge a matter than a judge is because the judge is concerned about secularism. The church, on the other hand, knows better. They understand moral issues, the responsibility between a brother and a sister. They're better qualified to judge your matters, John. So why are you taking them down to the Gainesboro court? This is his argument that he's going to develop. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, John. Trusting the judgment of unbelievers over the saints, you ought to be ashamed. Through the years, there have been a, a lot of fights between brothers in Christ. Sometimes it wound up in court. But never before the church. Why were people doing that? Couldn't they read 1 Corinthians and see what Paul was talking about? Why weren't they following the rules of Christian living? Sometimes I think people like the idea of going to heaven without the burden of having to live like a Christian. And they behave accordingly. But this is going to be Paul's argument. Now, before you ask, 
what happens if Rita and I put a matter before the church and you side with me over her? But she's definitely in the right. What does she do then? Then she could appeal to a magistrate or a judge. The reason I say that is because sometimes a husband and a wife, the husband is uh, an adulterer, and the wife doesn't want to be married to him any longer. If she's going to collect alimony and child support, she can't put the matter before the church because the husband's not going to abide in it. He's fixing to become a sinner. Well, he's already a sinner living in adultery, but he's going to become a double adulterer once she puts him away. The only recourse she has is to take him to the state because the state has the authority to make him pay alimony and child support. The church does not. We could judge the matter, we could decide the matter, but I don't think he's going to listen to us. He's already decided he's not going to listen to Christ. So why would he listen to us? And it's going to wind up in a civil court. The civil court isn't a bad thing, but it ought not be the first step. The first step is to solve the matter among ourselves. So nobody outside knows what's going on. Nobody knows we got two brothers butting heads in here. They don't know that because we keep it all in the family, just like you and your wife do. When you go home and you have a knockdown drag out verbally, you don't tell anybody what you did. You try to hide it. You don't want people to know you argue, even though you argue, but we hide it. We don't know we've had we don't want everybody to know we've had problems with our kids. We deal with it in the house, and we conceal it. Well, that's what we're supposed to do as a church. We don't have to air our dirty laundry. We're not required to do that. And whenever it's possible, matters should be resolved inside. That's not what happens, is it? People will go out sometime, and they'll tell everybody and their brother what's going on. You don't want to be that person that does that. That's bad. That is so bad. That's real bad. You don't want to go outside of the church and start airing our dirty laundry. And we have some from time to time. But you don't want to carry it outside and tell all our neighbors about it. Because if you do that, there's something I know about you. You don't love the Lord. You don't love the body of Christ. And you don't love the person you're talking about. When that rumor mill gets to cranking, all kinds of damage can be done. I've been the subject of the rumor mill enough times. I know what I'm talking about. Because sooner or later, whatever you said is going to come back to the person you said it about. I guarantee you it will. It will happen. You shouldn't even want to do such a thing. When somebody's upset, we ought to be wounded for their sake and try to help them with whatever problem they're suffering from. 
But to blab it to unbelievers? Ah, and I don't think that's going to go over good with the Lord. Okay, so this is what Paul's talking about. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to civil law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? You got a plaintiff, he's a brother in Christ, and he runs immediately to civil judgment. Don't do that, Paul said. Well, how dare you do that, Paul said. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You shall judge the world when the time comes. You will be qualified when the time comes. And if the world is going to be judged by you, the church, are you unworthy to judge your own small matters? If you can judge the entire world from the beginning to the end, if you can sit in judgment over all that, you can't decide a land dispute between two brothers? Well, of course you can. Who better to do it than you? You love both of them. You care about both of them. And you want right to be done. No matter who winds up with the foot of land they're fighting over, you want the right thing to be done. When two brothers are butting heads, take it to the church. Do you not know that we should judge angels? A lot of angels that fell from divine grace and are sentenced to an eternal condemnation. And we're going to sit in judgment over them, according to Paul. How much more qualified are you to judge things that pertain to this life. Of course, you know I inserted all those words. That's the meaning of what he's getting across to us. If you're qualified to judge the world and angels, how much more qualified are you to judge these little matters that only have to do with this life you're living at the time? <laughs> Given the right perspective, There's just really nothing in the world that's worth fighting over. In the big picture, there are things worth fighting over, but not in an ugly matter, not in a dirty fashion. We do what we do in the right way. There's times when you have to go to civil court. But Paul's talking about those matters just over the little frivolous things that people sometimes fight over, an argument. She said something about my hairdo, and I'll never forgive her for that. No, you don't want to be that way. You, you lose your soul if you act that way. You need to settle the matter and not let the feud continue. The smallest matters that he talked about in verse 2 are those things that pertain to this life, not eternal life or spiritual life. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, if you can make determinations, the Holy Spirit has revealed all truth to us. We're qualified. We should be qualified because all truth has been revealed to us. 
John 16 and verse 13, the Lord said, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, all that's right. Oh, boy, we got to stop. Verse 4, chapter 6. Okay, God willing, we'll start here uh, next week.